Welcome to the Cost of Not Paying Attention, hosted by nationally recognized speaker Janine Hamner Holman. Janine knows what it takes to attract and retain world class talent. Join her here each week on the Cost of Not Paying Attention as we use brain science, leadership, management, and real life challenges managers face to explore the places where we aren't paying attention. Welcome to The Costs of Not Paying Attention. I'm your host, Janine Hamner-Holman. What am I paying attention to today? The road not taken. So I don't know about y'all, but when I was a youngster and sort of coming up in the world of work, this is not at all what I thought I was going to be doing, doing organizational development with companies and really making the world of work a place in which people could thrive. That was not my plan. My first plan was to be an attorney. And I had had a crazy experience when I was in high school working for a very preeminent Harvard Law School professor. And I thought, great, this is what I want to do. Like, really? I'm going to be the youngest tenured professor ever in the history of Harvard Law School and get to take on all these really interesting pro bono clients? Like, that's pretty much a moonshot. And then I went and worked for a couple of big law firms in New York City. And then I thought, oh, no, this is not what I want to do. And so I pivoted. And it's one of the things that I think is so great about the story of people's lives is that those twists and turns. And even if you thought you were going to be a dentist and then you went to dental school and then you're a dentist and you're a dentist for the next 25 years or 45 years. The other stories that are in there about people's lives and the things that they take on along the way, that's where I think the really interesting extra juice comes from. Which brings me right to our guest for today. Frank Ramos is attorney from Miami, Florida, and he is joining us from there. And will tell us a lot more. We're going to learn a lot more about him as we go along. So welcome, Frank. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. You're very welcome. So tell me, what is something that you have become aware of that people are not paying attention to? And what's the cost of that? I think what I've become aware of, especially during the pandemic and we're finally almost the end of it, is how short our attention spans have gotten, <laughs> where we basically have gone to the point where if you don't get somebody's attention at three seconds, you're just not getting it. And the hook point or the hook or the whatever you say or do, whatever form of communication you're taking, especially if you're promoting yourself or your business, if it doesn't get somebody right between the eyes immediately, you're going to lose them. And I think a lot of it has to do with our technology, our smartphones, and how many notices and pop-ups we get on a continual basis you know, between emails, text messages, and instant messages, and notices from various news agencies and everything else. We probably get a notice every four or five seconds on our phones. And some of us are responding to them immediately. And obviously, it's just so much from so many different directions that we've learned to 
we immediately determine whether something is worthy of our attention or not. And that has transcended just our phones to our personal relationships. And so whoever's talking to us, even in just casual conversation or dinner or coffee, we immediately either pay attention or we don't. And I think it's not something we're going to change. And I don't think just telling people to be more cognizant or to put their phones down or to be more aware is really going to change how we behave. I think this is now part of our mosaic and infrastructure and how we deal with each other. We just have to be much more aware. I don't think we're more rude or more impatient, but that's just the way it is now. And if we wanted to actually break through the noise, we have to get to the point really almost immediately in any conversation or context. So there was a lot in there. And my research is you are exactly right. I saw the other day that our attention span is now less than that of a goldfish. <laughs> which I find both hysterical and very depressing. <laughs> and so if that's all we can stand, if the amount of time that we have to get somebody interested in what we're talking about, in what lights us up, in our marketing, in talking about nonprofit organization that we're involved in, whatever it is that we want to have a conversation with somebody about. If all we have is those first two or three seconds, A, yikes, and B, so how can we frame what ideas do you have around, what tips or tools do you have around how we can hook somebody in that quick period of time? That's always focused on the recipient of the information in terms of what he or she wants or is interested in and casting a broad enough net, but addressing issues that concern them in language that they relate to and in a context that makes the most sense, which is difficult, especially if you're doing it sort of either through print or visual media. You have to obviously define who your audience is and whatever message you give is not going to attract everybody. So you have to find a way to have it be both narrow, but broad as well. So that's certainly challenging. (laughs) And I think in these days, better course is to beta test a lot of different things, whether it is social media or in other contexts, and see what works and what resonance gets the most response to what you're trying to say. And I think, I mentioned social media, I think that's really a great place to see what works for you and see who you are attracting, what attention you're getting, and who's responding to your message. I'm very active on LinkedIn, and I post daily, sometimes multiple times a day. And with the analytics that they share with you, and there's also certain add-ons like Shield and others that can provide you more data points, you can immediately know what messages are resonating, breaking through, and really touching the hearts and minds of the people you're trying to reach. And that's just one way of doing it. You know, obviously, if you're doing other forms of media, if you're just meeting people in person, if you are meeting people for coffee, or whatever it is, be very cognizant when people are paying attention to you, what eye contact they make, how engrossed or engaged they are, how easy they get distracted. And that will help you hone your message whenever you're trying to market, sell yourself, or trying to let them know about your products or service. So we want to think about who it is that we're trying to reach and beta test a couple of ideas on social media or in other venues, try a couple things out, see what hooks people. For the work that you do, so you are a trial attorney. Do I have that right? That's correct. And so for people who don't know, what does a trial attorney do? Well, I do civil defense litigation for companies. And most of our cases actually don't go to trial. We settle most of our cases. I do try a case every few months or so. But we handle litigation with a particular litigation firm here in Miami. And my prospective client or clients are generally other lawyers or in-house counsel. 
who can refer me matters. Either they are here in Florida or they're elsewhere and they have matters that are being litigated and they need someone to defend the company. So that they're small cases, or often not their larger matters to point them out to handle. And what I do is I try to build a brand online because these days, especially in the last few years, I've done so little traveling, is to try to push out my brand and try to develop a large footprint online. And I've done that primarily through LinkedIn, which I mentioned. And I do that by posting daily, by discussing, and giving away a lot of content and providing a lot of information free in terms of ebooks and videos and links to webinars I've given and so forth. And I use that as sort of my hook point to get people kind of drawn into who I am and what I do. And my posts, for anybody who's been following me, I'm about 60,000 followers on the platform. I've been posting daily for about six years or so. I've learned and I studied the platform very much. And early on, my posts were longer. They were more dense, a lot less white space. And now my posts have become much more direct, usually the first sentence, even the first phrase is sort of a catchphrase or something that really gets somebody's attention and makes them think. And that draws them in. That's sort of a hook that makes them think, ask them to reading and I try to say whatever I'm going to say in the most succinct and shortest way possible. LinkedIn has a character limit about 2600 characters. I never get close to that limit. I'd recommend other people don't either. Again, going back to the rule that we have two to three seconds to get somebody's attention. People are busy and you want to just say enough to get on their radar, stay top of mind and have them think of you when they have a need in your field and your geographic region. And so that's how I've made it work. And a lot of times I've used phraseology or terminology or Things I've thrown out through ideas that have really resonated, they've gone viral. And then I realized, okay, well, this is an important point. This is an issue. This is something that I'm sharing that people really have lumped on. And so I'm going to incorporate that when I make presentations, I do my share, or when I meet people for coffee, I realize that, that statement or that thought has provoked thought in others, has given other people something of value. And so I usually find a way to incorporate that into just my daily conversation. So again, finding out what works for you, finding out what works for your audience, figuring out what they want, what they like. And again, social media is a great outlet for that. And then using what works there in other mediums, both in person and otherwise. Awesome. I know that you also do a lot of mentoring of other folks. And so tell me a little bit more about that. A, how come? Why do you like to mentor other people? And then B, how do you find the right folks to who will really benefit from your mentorship? I started mentoring a number of years ago. I've been practicing about 25 years and early on in my career. I noticed that a lot of young lawyers didn't have people that they could speak to and get help and assistance from. And I went through a period of my own career where I kind of felt like I was suffering from imposter syndrome, didn't feel like I knew what I was really doing. And so I started sitting down and writing these short form articles, these how-to pieces, really for my own benefit, more than anybody else, just to confirm that I actually had learned a thing or two in the few <laughs> years I've been practicing. And that kind of caught on. I started getting a lot of feedback from other young lawyers who appreciated that I was just kind of providing these, I don't want to say simplistic, but simple and direct messaging out there. I had done a blog a couple of times, written 50 books, a lot of articles. And then I started writing a lot of books. I've written about 20 now. And around 2016, I really sort of picked that up. And that's when I started posting daily on LinkedIn. I'd been on the platform, let's say 2008, 2009. Didn't really understand the platform at the time. It was much more of a resume sharing site than anything else. and still serves that purpose, but it really has sort of evolved since then. And in those postings, I really started developing a following, especially among younger lawyers and law students. And a lot of the information that I share is sort of advice geared to that audience in terms of how to prepare cases for trial, how to try cases, issues on leadership, mentoring, public speaking, writing, and all the facets, soft, hard skills that we need as 
practicing lawyers. And people started calling me and just asking me just very general questions about their lives and their careers, something case related, just you know, more broad based questions. So I started having people work for coffee. There's a coffee shop across the street from my office called Bistro Bakery. I knew people there before my day started. And that just became a thing. And since then, I've developed a rum bar in my office on people for drinks after hours. And I don't really have a selection process. I basically open it up and people want to come by. I set up time and get together and that'll over a half hour or so. I'll happy to answer any questions they have. And again, the questions they have are very large questions about their careers and their lives more than just specific case or law or we're not having legal conversations. And I think I learn as much from them as I do about myself. Certainly, I learned how to communicate more effectively by doing that. So many of us are afraid of public speaking and getting in front of a larger audience. And if you can get used to having communications one-to-one, having those one-to-one conversations with a wide variety of individuals, presenting to a large audience is really no different. It's really a conversation. You're doing most of the talking, <laughs> but you are engaged with the audience. You're looking, you're seeing how they're reacting. And occasionally you get a question or two, but you feel very more comfortable doing that than if you've never actually just get used to being around people and talking to them. So the benefit to me was really developing my listening skills, my communication skills, better appreciating what people are really saying and not saying. And I think so much communication, which makes electronic communication a little bit difficult, is sitting across somebody, uh, seeing their body language, seeing their eye contact or lack thereof, seeing whether their feet are pointing toward you or away from you, whether their eyes are glancing around, what's being with their hands, and the tone of their voice and the modulation, the cadence and all that. And after a while, you just start noticing little things. You notice these tells, you know, when people are being direct or indirect, and they're being open, being closed up, body language, or whether they're kind of closing themselves off or opening themselves up to you. And I guess I'm almost an amateur psychologist in that sense. And that only comes from doing it a lot. So have I given a lot of hours mentoring your people? Sure, but I think I've gotten a lot of returns. So whatever you do, sort of pay it forward. There's always some value that comes back to you. Absolutely. And so I want to pick up on one of the things that you said when you were talking about your early days as an attorney and this idea of imposter syndrome. And because I think this is one of these sort of phrases that has gained a little bit of popularity, but I think a lot of people are still sort of in the dark about what this is and about how it can manifest in us and then what the ways are that we can work to dispel that. So in a very quick 10,000 view, 10,000 foot view, imposter syndrome is essentially thinking, feeling like you're an imposter, feeling like I don't really know if I know what I'm talking about. I'm just, maybe I'm sort of winging it. And it's that fear that we're not as good as we think we are, that we're not as good as we say that we are. And one of the things that I think is really fascinating about imposter syndrome is that high achieving people are much more likely to suffer from it. And it is something that cuts across gender, men and women, And it doesn't matter if you are an attorney or if you're a neuroscientist or if you're a brain surgeon, literally people in sort of when I was growing up, people would talk about rocket scientists and brain surgeons as sort of being the upper echelon. Those people suffer from it, too. And we can think that, well, if I'm suffering from it, if I'm questioning my worth, if I'm questioning if I'm good enough, then I must be right right? I mean, I wouldn't be thinking that I'm not good enough. 
if I'm really good enough. And I think it's really important to shine a light on it because so many people are suffering from it in the dark. So many people are suffering from it and not realizing how common it is and how human it is. And I love that one of the things that you started doing to overcome that in yourself was writing and blogging. Were there other things that, or are there other things that you have done over the years to help get yourself outside of that feeling or fear? I think what I did is I simply confronted it. I think we all have a sense that we're not good enough, that we don't belong, that somehow we're not quite the fit, our company, our firm, or maybe working. And that goes beyond sort of work. It could be our social structure, our social strata, whatever organizations, trade associations, or bar associations we belong to, or a church or synagogue. But somehow we're sort of a square pig at round hole. And I think there's two parts of addressing that. One is just not caring about what other people think. And it's easy to say that, but <laughs> once you reach that level of transcendence, it's almost like the same moment where no matter what people think doesn't really bother or affect you, life is a lot easier. <laughs> and again, it's easy to make that statement, oh, I just don't care how people react to what you have to say or think. But it's really important to get to that point in your life because, first of all, it's your life. No one else is living your life. No one's paying your bills. No one is staying up at night worrying about what you do or don't do. And so it's really up to you to sort of create some distance and create some boundaries between you and any detractors or anybody else who may be thinking of being detractors and maybe having some adverse or opinions or undermining you harm anyway. And that can include family, that include coworkers, that include relatives or friends or whomever else. And, and it's very empowering not to react, not to return your power to somebody else and let them sort of pull the strings into like a marionette. And you get to the point where you don't really care what people think, then you don't really care about belonging or not belonging or whether you're good or not good enough because there's really no point of comparison anymore. And so that's very free. And I think the second point, which is probably more important, more practical to do, is that you need to learn to be okay with sucking at something at the beginning. <laughs> when I first started writing, and I've written a lot, my first articles were pretty bad, and my first book wasn't all that great either. And just the way it is. Yeah. And when I first started speaking, I wanted to just project on vomit. I couldn't even, like, my hands were shaking. I couldn't even get the words out of my mouth. My mouth was so dry. And now, you know, I speak once or twice a week, just part of what I do. Putting aside the stuff I do for work in terms of just public speaking and being a keynote speaker, going around and doing what I talk about. And that just comes with getting in front of an audience and doing it. Whatever you want to do, there's no replacement for repetition, doing it over and over and over again. You know, people who are professional basketball players get in and they'll shoot hundreds of free throws. People who are baseball players will take hundreds of practice swings. And this is the same thing. And so whatever you do, whether you're a lawyer, doctor, accountant, salesperson, you just do more of it. Just put yourself out there and keep doing it. You know, if there's a specific skill you need, maybe it is learning how to network, well, then go out and network. And sure, the first few times you're going to say some dumb things, you're going to remember your name, and you're pronounce somebody else's name, and you're <laughs> drinking yourself. But eventually, you're going to get pretty good at it. Eventually, you're going to be able to hold a room, hold court, and people are going to be attracted to you, and you become the center of attention. And at that point in your life, when people are interacting with you, they're not going to remember how awkward you are 10 years before. And the same people who hear me speak now, if I heard me speak, a decade or more ago, and they're not thinking, oh, that speech you gave 10 years ago really kind of sucked. <laughs> they're like, oh, it's a great speech you gave now. And that, I guess, is, goes hand in hand with not really caring. Like, 
a lot of people don't want to do these things because they don't want to suck in front of other people right. and confirm their own bias themselves. But you're going to suck. It's just you're going to suck. And that's just the way it is. And you have to get past that. And you have to just keep doing it and doing it. And each day you're going to suck a little bit less. And then eventually you have to suck at all. And then you'll be good. And then you'll be really good. And then you'll be great. And then people will kind of look at you and kind of like assume that you're always great. Like, you know, you must have always been great at whatever it is you're suddenly great at. And it's not really the case at all. But that's really the process. The process is one continual effort and patience and discipline over time. And eventually you'll get to where you want to be. And I love this idea of being okay with sucking. And when we were little, I had the opportunity the other day to be around a little person who was, oh, she was about 11 months old. And she was just sort of getting into this understanding of balance and walking. When we start doing anything, we suck at it. She sucks at walking. She is. And she falls down and she gets right back up and she falls down and she gets right back up. And that's how we are wired. We are wired to be resilient in that sort of way. And the older we get, the less interested we are in sucking. And I think that there's an opportunity. I was talking with a CEO the other day and we were talking about this idea of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think there's so much happening in our world, in our businesses, in the pace of change that is happening, that is calling upon us to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, to get okay with being uncomfortable, to be okay with saying the wrong thing and then cleaning it up and having a little bit more compassion, having a little bit more grace for other people and granting each other some grace for falling down. But getting credit for trying, getting credit for being in, there's that Teddy Roosevelt speech about the man in the arena, being willing to get in there and do the work and get boxed down and keep coming back. And I think that's our opportunity, whether we're looking at imposter syndrome or stretching outside of our comfort zone to be around people who may be different from us or have different ideas from us or learning how to do something like public speaking. I remember Jerry Seinfeld had this joke, which was that people are more afraid of public speaking than they are of death, which means that if they have to be at a funeral, they'd rather be in the coffin than delivering the eulogy. And there's so much I get to be, I get to do a keynote speech for HR conference in California in a few weeks. And I just found out there's going to, it's at the conventions, it's at a, a convention center in Anaheim. It's a big conference. So there's all these satellite rooms. And I just found out yesterday that I'm on the main stage. And my first thought was, ah, shit. <laughs> I'm on the big girl stage. And then my second thought was, wahoo. And I think it's fine for us to have the first response be like, uh-oh. <laughs> as long as our second response is, okay, cool, bring it on. How can this continue to help me and us with all the things that we are up to creating in the world? So as we start thinking about wrapping this up for today, if you had a megaphone and you could say something to the world, what would you love for people to know or people to think about or people to embrace? I think you have to define for yourself what you really want to pursue and pursue it wholeheartedly. And there are always going to be detractors in your life. And that could be your significant other, could be your boss, 
but you have to be true to yourself and what you want to pursue. So ultimately it's your life, it's your choices. And if whether you're happy or sad or joyful or under the weather, it's your decisions. Ultimately, you can't really blame anybody other than yourself for what you do. And I think there's nothing sadder than being at the end of your life and looking back and saying, I really wish I would have done X. So it's really kind of too late then. So take some risks, take some chances. It doesn't mean you're necessarily going to succeed, but you'll never know if you didn't try. And there is some solace in doing something and failing and at least scratching that off your list. It's ultimately <laughs> for you. And, and you'll be surprised how often you actually will succeed, how often you'll actually accomplish something. And even in your failures or shortcomings, you'll learn more about yourself, not only to help yourself, but learn and help others. And I think so often bad things happen to us so that we can help other people through their bad times. And so putting your neck out there and taking chances and failing not only is a learning experience for you, but helps others go through that experience when it's their turn to try. I think that's awesome. And the reality is we as humans, we don't grow when things are easy. We grow when things are challenging. We grow when things are hard. We grow when we fail and when we get back up. We grow when we push outside of our comfort zone and we try something new. And when you were talking about Nothing sadder than dying with regrets. Dan Pink has a new book out called Regret. And one of the things that he talks about in that book is that the biggest regret that people have is something that they didn't do, some time that they did not reach for that thing. They didn't ask the girl out. They didn't try that thing. They had an opportunity to mentor that person and they didn't step up. Those are the things ultimately where we have the most regret in our life. So swing out. Don't be afraid to suck and keep at it. Thank you, Frank. This has been a really fun conversation. I appreciate your wisdom and your insights and all that you do to mentor folks who are coming up, especially as attorneys, but in all kinds of ways. If you're not following Frank, if you're not his friend yet on LinkedIn, go check him out. He's got some great and interesting and fun tips. I am following him and I just realized I just followed you. I hadn't sent you a friend request. So now I sent you a friend request in addition to that. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again. It's been great uh, half hour we've had together. You are more than welcome. I am Janine Hamner-Holman and this has been The Cost of Not Paying Attention. Remember, Great leaders make great teams. Until next time. On behalf of Janine Hamner-Holman, thanks for paying attention. This has been the cost of not paying attention. Head on over to our website, www.janinehamner.com forward slash podcast for access to the show notes as well as additional resources. Remember, great leaders make great teams. I'm beginning to think. I'm beginning to think. I might sit here and just breathe. I think I might need a political science degree. About my anxiety. So, all out of learning and store, reading and training, and listening more. Mm-hmm. Education.